Hello, this is Joe and TJ, and we are the Schoolhouse 302, and we want to welcome you back to Focus Ed for Season 4. We are truly excited. Focus Ed is a collaborative project with the University of Delaware, the Delaware Department of Education, and the two of us, Joe and TJ, at the Schoolhouse 302. TJ, tell our audience a bit more about Focus Ed. Absolutely. Focus Ed is a podcast that gets recorded with a live audience. We do 14 episodes every season. We're in season four, but you can find season one, two, and three on our site at theschoolhouse302.com. It's a professional development experience for anyone who wants to attend, and then we blast it out from our site. We interview great leaders, authors of popular books, and experts in teaching, learning, and leading so that you can lead better and grow faster in your school or district. Thank you for listening to Focus Ed, and we hope you'll join us live. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Focus Ed, where we invite expert guests to join us. And this episode, we have Christine Ravesi-Weinstein. Glad she's with us today. We were just chatting pre-show that it's been three years. Absolutely incredible since our paths last crossed. Christine, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Our focus is on how leaders can and should disrupt the status quo. We know that there are perennial problems persistent in education that are plaguing our everyday lives, and we need to tackle them with innovation and leadership in ways that we will learn from Christine today. TJ. Tell us a little bit more about Christine. Absolutely. Thank you, Joe. Christine Ravesi-Weinstein serves as a high school assistant principal in Massachusetts and previously worked as a high school science department chair four years, as well as a classroom teacher for 15. Diagnosed with anxiety and depression at 23, Christine began her journey towards mental wellness. She began a nonprofit organization in June of 2017 aimed at removing the stigma of mental illness and promoting physical activity as a means to cope with anxiety. We also know she's an avid runner. We see that on Twitter. <laughs> as an avid writer and educator, Christine became passionate about bridging the two with her advocacy for mental health. Since March of 2019, she has had numerous nationally published articles, including the number one most read article of 2019 on eSchool News. She's also had the number six and number eight most read articles in that year in that publication. She has also published articles with district administration, the Teach Better team, tech and learning, and smart brief. Not only is she a highly sought-after speaker, Christine is an MASCD board member, author of books, Anxious by Times 10 Publication, Fighting Your Inner Voice, and now Disrupt the Status Quo, which we're going to talk about tonight, which she published with Codebreaker. You can follow her on Twitter at Ravese Weinstein, R-A-V-E-S-I-W-E-I-N, S-T-E-I-N. That's for everybody who's live and everybody who's listening to the show at home and also on YouTube at The Runner's High. Okay, Christine, with all of that in mind, yeah. we're going to jump into this conversation with you. You and your co-authors wrote a book called Disrupt the Status Quo. We love the title. We love the message. We want our leaders to disrupt the status quo. We talk about it all the time. Why did you focus so intently with this book on toxicity, 
failure, perspective, and voice. We want to know that part first. So when the four of us met, we talked about what we felt in education were the biggest hurdles that we face. And after talking for a long, long time, we came up with everything we could put into those four buckets, right? So school culture is really almost too buzzy now, right? And so what we wanted to talk about is what about school culture do we need to start to break? And we felt like the word toxicity really encompassed so much of the school culture that we need to change. And that can be anything from straight up toxic environments to toxic positivity, which is something that we can all experience. Failure is really what we're talking about when we talk about assessment and standards, but we don't want to talk about failure. So we decided instead of saying, let's talk about student assessment, like let's talk about what it really is. It's failure. You know, how we can be more collaborative with our students. Again, that was really buzzy. And so we decided, well, we're not going to talk about that. We're going to talk about what it is. That's student voice. And then the other piece too is we get, you know, you work in your silos, right? You hear that all the time. You know, everyone's in their silo. What we really mean by that is have a different perspective, but we try to, you know, make it sound like it's something other than what it is. And what we're really talking about is perspective. And so in coming up with those four buckets, we right away start to disrupt the status quo because those aren't four words that are, you know, buzzwords in education yet. We try to clean them up and make them look pretty. And we talk about other things that we were like, no, we're just not going to do that in this book. We're going to talk about it as it is. So that's why we focused on those things because our conversations led us always back to those four points. Christine, let's dive a little more into this concept of toxicity. I think there's a lot going on right now. And I appreciate you mentioning positive toxicity, specifically because sometimes we can ignore the weeds in the garden and say, there's no weeds, there's no weeds, there's no weeds when there is weeds, right? Correct. But they're also at the point where there's others who always highlight the weeds. And it's like, yeah, we know there's weeds, you know, but we need help (laughs) pulling them. Can you pull us down that road a little bit of building a culture in which does take an honest survey of what's going on, doesn't necessarily overlook it or make them too flowery, but also doesn't feel like helpless or trying like overwhelmed by the problems either. Where's that sweet spot and that approach to dealing with those issues? So it's really interesting you say that because while the book is written and we divided it up into these four themes, all the themes are really intertwined, right? So when you talk about toxicity, the way you manage a toxic environment, whether it's people who are choosing not to see the weeds and so everything is just where everybody's a cheerleader and we're all doing so great and everything is everybody else's problem, or you're stuck in an environment where you're never made to feel appreciated, it's all about perspective, right? And if we can get other people to see the other perspective, for instance, like, yeah, you're a great educator. You have so much that you do well. However, we can always do better. That's the change in perspective that can help eliminate the toxic positivity. And by changing our perspective, you can empower people to use their voice. So when we talk about voice in the book, we're not just talking about student voice. We're also talking about educator voice. And it's the beauty of the book because you've got the perspective of four different educators. And so in each section, we write what that means to us. And so you're going to get one of the author's stories about toxic positivity and how did they deal with that? I wrote about toxicity from just a straight up working in a very toxic environment, 
an environment that worked very hard to push me down and try to prevent me from being who it was that I was right down to being a female. And so in all instances, it's finding the strength, the perspective, and the ability to use your voice to disrupt the status quo. And that's where you find that balance. You've got to find the people that think like you. You've got to be able to see that perspective from the other side. And then you've got to kind of pick your spots, right? You've got to not be stifled with your own voice. And so all of the stories will empower you to see how they're all connected. So let's double click on it and talk about it from a strategy level. We've got leaders on the call tonight. Some of them are new. We've got people who are hungry to know what to do next. I mean, people are thirsting for leadership strategies, building their culture, everything that you're talking about to tackle these things. How do we disrupt the status quo? You've talked about it in terms of the four buckets, but what would you say to leaders? Here's a way to do that with people, whether it's toxic positivity or some other thing that they're trying to confront and alter? So I think it really starts with you. And so even if you think strongly about something, you can't dive headfirst into it. And most of the problems that you're going to encounter, the root of it is that people want to be heard. So the biggest strategy that I think that new leaders can use to try to change culture in schools where these four buckets are concerned is to listen to what other people are saying and really hear them. Because when you really hear them and they feel like they've been listened to, then they're going to be much more open to hear other perspectives. They're going to be more willing to let you as a leader use your voice. And then in turn, you're going to be able to change the toxicity that you're struggling with. I know it sounds so, so simple, but listening is something that is pretty straightforward to do, but so many people don't feel heard. And so I just started a new job this fall and I have people come in all the time that want to talk about a problem that they have. And I simply listen and I let them know, like, I can't solve that right now. You know, I'm going to help you out. I'm going to talk about it with someone that I think can help you. And I'm going to get back to you. And they leave with a smile on their face, right? Like it changes that instead of them going to a colleague and bellyaching about it, which is the seed of toxicity, right? Those parking lot conversations that flood your schools. By listening to them as a leader, it eliminates those seeds that breed the toxic environments. That's the number one strategy that you can use. And it's not hard. You have to just practice it, but you can get there. So that's the first thing that I would say to anybody that's starting out in leadership. That's how you disrupt the status quo. Love the idea, Christine, about listening. I think we talked about us doing that a lot as leaders. I just don't know how often or how well we do that. Yeah, I don't think we do it well on the whole. And I don't think it's any fault of our own. I don't think we do it intentionally. As leaders, we're making a million decisions over the course of a day that we've got to make on the fly. We don't have a lot of time to dissect a situation to the point we probably should in a moment, right? And I think that lends itself to us not being able to listen to the degree that we might like. And so I think the way we combat that is by being honest with the people that we serve and saying, you know, when they come in and they say, do you have a minute? Instead of being like, yes, because you don't want to say no. And then they start airing their grievances and you're not really listening. Then instead just say, I really want to give you the time I need. I don't have a couple minutes right now. Can you come back at such and such a time when you know you're going to be better? I think that's how we do it is we give ourselves some grace. We say no a little bit more. 
so that we can actually give them our ear when they want to hear it. I think in the long run, that works better. You're creating a space, you know, you're getting stopped in the hall. Listen, your problem right now is something that's important to me. Let me do my due diligence and create a time for us to really meet. Let's go down this road a little further because when you're talking, Christine, I'm also thinking about personality types, things like the DISC profile. I know a lot of leaders have taken that. That's something that resonated with me very early on. I tend to fall into influence and dominant side of the disc. And you don't really need to know disc to follow what I'm saying. But as a leader, I can tell a lot more than listen. And so I find myself having to listen, ask questions. But can we go down the road also a little bit of how that relates to failure, how we can promote the idea that failing isn't final and that a good culture really does promote that, especially among teachers and students, you know, that we want them to try, we want them to take risks. I think that degree of empowerment really disrupts the status quo and allows for a lot more freedom in what people can and should do. What are your thoughts around that? So when it comes to failure, I think we often forget what the ultimate goal is, right? So for so many teachers, for the leaders on here, if you've ever gone into observed classrooms, I mean, you could probably say a million times you've heard a teacher say, all right, we got to move on to the next thing. We're running out of time, right? Like, this is such a common thing you hear. You hear it all the time. And what that communicates is I'm more concerned about getting through curriculum than I am about you as a student understanding or meeting the standard you're supposed to. And so what we do is we grade because we need to move on to the next thing. We don't grade because we're actually assessing if a student met the goal. So in the book, I give the simple example of learning how to ride a bike, right? Like I've never met anybody that hopped on a two-wheeler and took off and rode it successfully, right? It takes a lot of steps, a lot of practice. You fall, you got to get back on it, right? There's a process that we've probably all experienced. You start with training wheels, you take the training wheels off, you hold the back of the kid's bike, you run with them, you try to like pretend you're holding it so they don't know, and then they find out you're not holding it, and they fall over or whatever the case may be, right? The whole point is I need to teach my child how to ride a bike by Saturday, right? And then when Saturday ends and they still don't know how to ride a bike, you're like, okay, they're never going to know how to ride a bike. Tomorrow we'll try swimming, right? And we never go back to the bike riding. The goal isn't about when, it's about if and how. It's about can they do it? And so they're going to fail. You should fail, right? Like nothing outside of school do we typically try on the first time and get. I can think of so many things in my life that I tried the first time and I can't do. I tried riding a skateboard. I fell off of it right? I try to get up and you do it again. We revisit the things that we don't accomplish the first time outside of academia. However, in academia, we try it once and if you get it, you get it. If you don't, you move on. And we need to remind ourselves what the point of the assessment is. The point of the assessment is not to get through the unit because it's the end of the unit. The point of the assessment is for the students to see if they met the goal. If they don't, you try again right? The failure is a formative assessment. It tells you what they don't yet know and what you need to go over again. That's the whole point of failure. I mean, Brian Aspinall talks about how he locked his keys in his truck once, right? And he didn't know how to get them out and he didn't want to call a locksmith. So he went on YouTube, he looked up a video, he typed in the direct model of his car. And sure enough, there was a video on YouTube of how he could pick the lock of his own truck so he'd get his keys out, right? Now in the video, it took the person 30 seconds. So Brian goes out and he does it and he tells a story and he says, it took me 42 seconds, so did I fail? 
I didn't do it in the time the other guy did it, but I did it. And so it gets people thinking, okay, so what is failure? What does failure mean? And we need to remember that as educators, what's the point of the assessment? And failure is just a perspective, right? So here we are again, intermingling the four themes. So that's what I think we need to do to overcome this like stigma of failure. Yeah, you make a ton of great points there. I like all the analogies, in particular, the one you started with, which is we observe the teacher. And I think there's a lot that has to do with that too. Are we looking to observe teachers having perfect lessons or should we let them fail and take risks right in front of us? We're trying to support growth. So Mm -hmm. it might be better for them to show us a lesson that they've never done versus the one that they've done 10 times and they know the most about. But that's also in the culture too, this culture of like, it's okay to show your boss that you're trying something new. How do you build that? Like, how do I? Yeah, yeah. How do you do so, it? Because you're an administrator right now, yeah. like everybody on the call. And I'd love to hear you talk about like your day-to-day interactions with trying to get people to see that it's okay to not be able to ride the bike as long as you get back up and try it again. So I have face-to-face conversations with people. I worked for my first principal that I worked for. He was anti-face-to-face person. So he did everything like through email and the culture was just awful. And now I'm working for a principal who I'm not sure he ever checks his email. I think once a week, he'll tell his administrative assistant, like, do I have any email I really need to worry about? Whatever the case may be, like he does everything face-to-face. And so I think there's probably a middle ground, but when it comes to encouraging educators to take risks, I talk face-to-face with all of mine to start the year, whether I've evaluated them before, or this is the first time I'm meeting them. We talk about where they're at in the cycle of evaluation. We talk about what they hope to accomplish this year. And I tell them right out of the gate what my philosophy on evaluation is, right? I tell them that I want to be their coach, that I'm here to highlight their quality teaching skills, right? And so it's not a gotcha thing, right? I'm not assuming they're a terrible teacher and they've got to prove to me otherwise. I'm assuming they're a good teacher. And until and unless I see something that tells me otherwise, that's the assumption I'm going to make. I also tell teachers, if and when you're doing something that you think is really cool, or you want another set of eyes on, invite me in. And what happens is you get like, maybe one educator will invite you in and you make sure you go. I will make sure I'm there. When they send me that invite, I go, okay? And when I go in there, the first thing, I always just give them positive feedback, always the first time. And so they're like, whoa, that wasn't scary at all. And so then the word gets out. Like, yeah, definitely tell Miss Ravesi Weinstein, like you want her to see something, pop in and it's great. And so- I just started this job in the fall and I evaluate like 25 people and I've had probably 15 of them shoot me emails like, Hey, can you pop in? We're trying a joint lab with another physics section. We kind of curious what you might think of it. Absolutely. I prioritize it whenever I get those messages. And the more I'm in their room, the more comfortable they feel. And that's how you break down those walls, right? You've got to change that culture and it's not going to change it overnight. And I actually have gotten to a place where I love evaluating teachers and teachers really, they thank me when they see me. They're like, oh my God, thanks for the feedback. Like a lot of that made some really good sense. Also, when I see something I don't like, or I'm concerned about, I never say it like that. I always place the bottom of my feedback, things to consider or questions to think about. And so I pose it like, you know, when this happens, like, how can we do this better? And I always say, how can we, I never say, how do you? Like I say it as us as educators, like how do we as educators do this better? And so it feels less aggressive that way. 
I do want to highlight an important point that's being made really about evaluation tools and systems. You know, we're very fortunate that this podcast is supported by our Department of Ed in Delaware and the UAD, and we're going through a transition of evaluation tools from our DPASS system to DTGSS. Much of that is in part because we've recognized mainly what you were just saying, that teachers weren't receiving the degree of coaching that they needed. And the evaluation tool just wasn't achieving the end result. Most teachers were being rated effective or highly effective anyway. So why not model the tool to start Mm -hmm. doing what's intended to get people in the classroom, start coaching, pushing politely, right? Let's take your experience to another level. And then let's start working and doing what's right for kids. And I don't want to lose sight of that because I think that's sometimes where we need to go in education, build these relationships in a professional manner where they trust the administrator to start helping them grow as educators. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I wasn't at work today because I've been traveling all day and I checked my email I had an email from a colleague whom I don't actually evaluate reaching out to me saying, hey, you know, Christine, these are the behaviors I'm seeing in my class. These are the things I've tried. I still don't have a handle on it. Would you mind coming in to observe? Because I really could use a second set of eyes to see if you could help me think of any additional strategies. I mean, that's huge when you have an educator that's willing to admit, like, I don't have it figured out with this class. And I'm not concerned about you coming in and being like, whoa, this is out of control. I'm owning it. I'm saying I don't know what I'm doing and I need a coach to help me. That's like a dream to work in a place like that, to have a culture like that. You know, there's a lot of factors, but I do believe that one of the factors is how I present myself to staff when it comes to evaluation. I'm not out to get anybody. I'm here to help you. I don't know how it works in Delaware, but our teachers are expected to, it's referred to as uploading evidence of their teaching in certain standards to prove that they're doing a good job. I tell my teachers, you're not going to do that with me. And they look at me shocked. Like, that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm like, no, 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 no. As I go through and I put together your evaluation, it's my job to find those things in you, to see those, to come into your classroom and see that you're teaching all students, to come into your classroom and watch a lesson and see that they're structured correctly. So when I go to sit and write this, if there's something I don't think I've seen yet, I'm going to shoot you an email and say, you know, hey, Jenna, do you think that you could present me with, you know, an artifact that shows that you make additional effort to reach out to families? That's it. I'm going to assume you have it, right? I'm not going to be like, oh, well, she didn't provide it. So I'm going to write the evaluation and say it's missing and say it must need improvement. Like that's just a crappy way to be an administrator. But, you know, that was my experience as a teacher. That's how it was done to me. You know, I I once got needs improvement on my professionalism because it just so happened that on three department meeting days, my infant son was sick and I had to take him home. No one spoke to me. And it said I needed improvement because I don't prioritize the department. Like what, what? There should be no surprises when a teacher gets their evaluation ever. So I think that is a nice example of the disruption, right? And finding ways to make it gray, still fit within the system, but support the educators in probably a way they haven't been supported before, getting them to take risks, innovate and make change without just saying, you need to make change. Yeah. And so we appreciate that. 
I'd like to pivot just a little bit to some other leadership questions, school leadership questions that we ask our guests and get a little more granular with some things that you have found, some resources that support your growth. But sticking with the theme of observing teachers as we pivot, what's one improvement to the student experience that you'd like to see happen in every school that you might either be observing now or want to observe that's a difference for kids that would revolutionize the educational experience? I, like if I, if I could wave a magic wand, I would like to eliminate all numerical grading. I think numerical grading is the most subjective thing ever. You know, I say to teachers like, okay, the kid got a zero. What's the difference between a zero and a 50? And they're like, well, there's a huge difference. It's 50 points. I'm like, no, they both communicate that the kid didn't meet the standard. What a zero communicates is, well, why bother? Because I, I have, you know, I'm not even going to try. I can't make that up. A 50 is like, okay, you're halfway there. Like I want it to be fully standards-based grading. You know, my son is a fourth grader and in the district. He goes to school, elementary students all get standards-based grading where they get a narrative home. I understand that that takes a lot of work. I'm not suggesting that we need all teachers at all levels to write narratives for kids. But what I love about it is it's a standard. It's a, he meets it never, always, sometimes, often, whatever the options are. It's probably pretty standard in a lot of different districts. And they check off which box, right? And so, I'll, you know, I talk through it with my son, like, you're doing great. You're meeting a lot of these standards. We got to work a little bit more on your reading, right? And it doesn't discourage him. He's like, okay, mom. He's not looking at it like, oh my God, I got a D minus, right? <laughs> Maybe that would be the equivalent. I don't know. He doesn't know, but it doesn't discourage him. I think it could change a lot about the social emotional learning of students. I think it might increase their motivation. It might give them more of a sense of worth and belonging. And, you know, let's face it, that's how we're graded as adults in the jobs that we have, right? We don't get an A or a B, right? You get like, you need improvement or you're proficient in this. So why do we not emulate that? So many highly competitive colleges are getting rid of the expectation of even the SAT, you know, which is numerical grading, so... Christine, we're always intrigued by leaders and who influences them. Is there someone outside of education who you read or follow to help you develop and grow? Oh, man, that's so interesting. I get this question a lot. The leader that influenced me the most is not someone that's currently living and also not someone that might have ever had anybody ever answer for this question. So people laugh when I say it. Jim Henson is like my leadership hero. I think it comes to disrupting the status quo. My God, you want to talk about a genius, someone that received a lot of criticism for his vision and what he wanted to do, but what he accomplished in terms of getting young kids interested in learning getting young kids to understand cultural differences, belonging and acceptance. And the fact that he did it from the ground up, I've always been enamored by what he was able to accomplish, especially because he was also the kind of leader where he would never ask anyone else to do something he wasn't willing to. And so he built his company, but he was always hands-on, right? He wasn't the great Oz of the Jim Henson company, right? I mean, he himself was a puppeteer and he did the dirty work and he found other talent and groomed it in order to add on to encourage other leaders. And so I know that's probably a really unorthodox answer to that question. I'd be willing to bet no one else has ever said Jim Henson, but he absolutely is someone that I feel is almost heroic when it comes to leadership and disrupting the status quo and doing things differently, especially at a time where that was even harder to do. 
No, we appreciate that. We appreciate the out of the box thinking. And thanks for sharing. As we wrap up, the one thing too that our leaders love is resources, both in education or outside of education. We're going to link to your books for certain, but we know that leaders are readers. Can you tell us either what you're reading or your go-to books right now or articles or any resource that the leaders on the call can visit and, and check out? Yeah, so I read Edutopia a lot. I'm on that website a lot. I think they have a ton of awesome resources from all different caveats of education. So for teachers, for leaders. So I'm always looking at that. Smart Brief is great as well. When it comes to books, I read a lot of books about running. I think running, even if you're not a runner, I think the same mentality of sort of having a goal and trying to power through it in the adversity that you face as a runner, I like to be able to apply that to my role as a leader because there's so many parallels. So I don't dive too much into education specific books because again, I'm looking for other things to inspire me to then apply to my daily job. And I don't want to get burned out. I do love Codebreaker. I don't want to give a shameless plug here, but I think they do a great job of really producing a lot of materials that run the gamut in leadership. You know, they've got a lot of offshoot publication companies that you should check out as well. They do a great kids book series. So if you work at the elementary level as a leader, there's a lot of stuff there talking about and promoting Failure is something you should accept as a young person from especially like coding and, and that kind of thing. So for sure. And we'll link to Edutopia, we'll link to Codebreaker. And like I said, we'll link to your books. As we come to a close here, Christine, and this has been a wonderful experience. I know for us, for those listening, is there anything else that you would like to add or say to the listeners? I think, you know, the job that you're doing is not easy. It's hard as hell. And what I want to encourage you all to do is to give yourself some grace. You're working really hard and you're in education. So that suggests to me that you want to do more. You always feel like there's more to do or you're not doing enough. Take a step back and give yourself a little grace and realize that you are doing enough. It's sort of like, for me, having an infant, right? <laughs> like when you first have a baby, like they don't give you anything in return. But then all of a sudden, at one point, they start to smile a little bit, right? And they start to giggle and you're like, oh my God, there's the payoff. And so in education, it can feel the same way when you're in leadership, right? You're working, you're working, you're like, where's the payoff? I'm not seeing it. I'm not seeing it. But keep your eyes open because when you do get that giggle or you do get that little smile, that little burst of personality or someone thanks you, it's an amazing feeling and hold on to it because you're not always going to get it. Give yourself some grace. It's going to come. Thank you for that. Give yourself some grace, leaders who are listening. You heard it here on Focus Ed. Christine Ravesi Weinstein, everybody. How about a round of applause virtually <laughs> at home? Thank you. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by the Delaware Academy for School Leadership, the Delaware Department of Education, and the Schoolhouse 302. Don't forget to follow the schoolhouse302.com for podcasts, blog posts, books to read, and more. We'll be back soon with another episode of Focus Ed. Until then, stay focused. Hey, leaders, before you go, one more announcement. We now have available for you our candid and compassionate feedback masterclass. Really, because of high demand, we are thrilled to offer this. This is a course that we run live 
and in person all the time, and leaders love it. They learn to give feedback with skills that they can use right away, including better praise to lift and celebrate your team. It's now available in a virtual online format that you can take on your own, self-paced, from the comfort of your office or home. Here's what you'll get. There are 11 lessons with a focus on nine candor cancellations that we wrote in our Candid and Compassionate Feedback book. These are mistakes that leaders make that we don't want you to make anymore. We'll teach you models so that your feedback is meaningful and we'll give you tools necessary to build the culture that you always wanted. Trust us, without these critical skills, you're not capitalizing on your own capacity to lead better and grow faster. Go to the site, theschoolhouse302.com, click on shop courses, add this course to your cart and start learning today.